0: let's do a brief meditation on the mind stream. And we'll start by reviewing the three points that a made about uh, products, impermanent phenomena. So the first one is that all impermanent phenomena Arise by causes. take a minute and reflect on uh, the various impermanent things that you see in the environment around you and the impermanent things inside of you, different sensations, different feelings, different thoughts, and reflect that they all have causes that none of them arise without causes. And so you might try and identify some of the causes of these uh, so that that becomes very clear to you. And the second point is that all those Causes are impermanent. They're changing every nanosecond, never remaining the same. So go back and think about those things and other things, feelings, sensations, thought, and so forth, and contemplate that their causes are impermanent. That a permanent cause, an unchanging cause, cannot produce anything. And so, if we think, have the idea of a permanent creator, then how can that creator act as a permanent cause for everything? The third quality is that the causes have to, uh, things arise from concordant causes. In other words, the causes have to be capable of producing that kind of result. Grapefruits uh, come from grapefruit trees and grapefruit seeds. They don't arise from car parts, so whatever, a ca- whatever cause something has, it has to be not only something that's changing momentarily, but something that has the ability to produce that effect. In other words, not anything can produce anything. So think about that for a minute. And then consider that the body, the brain, are material in nature. The consciousness, the mind, is immaterial. It's clear and cognizant. So these two things have completely different natures. So while the body can influence the mind and the mind can influence the body, the body is not a concordant cause for the mind. Something material cannot be the substantial cause that gives rise to consciousness. And so as you consider that really, Think about what the mind is. It's impermanent. as it has a cause that's changing every moment. But anything material cannot be its substantial cause. It doesn't have the ability to transform into that which is clear and cognizant. So what is the substantial cause for any particular moment of consciousness? It's interesting, isn't it? You start to think about this, and what's the relationship between the body and the mind and the self? Yeah, something material cannot produce the mind, and yet. You now, if we have one moment of mind coming from the previous moment of mind, one moment after another, yeah, then because it's a, a very stable continuum, all the moments of consciousness, they seem alike in that they're all clear and cognizant. So then it's very easy to think, oh, well, part of the mind is permanent. It's clear and cognizant each moment. That doesn't change. So that part's permanent. Yeah, you see what I mean? It's your mind go going that direction? Yeah. And then it's also very easy from there you add on to, you know, that thing that's, you know, every single moment there, that's always there. That must be me. Uh So then you get some idea of a self that is the mind string that is also static and permanent, because it's clear and cognizant every single moment that doesn't change. So then you get a really uh, reified sense of self. But then when you look, you now, can the consciousness be the person? Well, the person does many things that the consciousness can't do. The person walks. The person plays hockey. The person types on the computer. The mind doesn't do those things. So the person does things that the mind can't do. So the mind and the person can't be exactly the same. We can't say, my mind is me. And also, when we do say some things that have to do with the mind, where it seems like we are the mind, I'm thinking, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling happy, yeah, I'm planning, I'm imagining. Yeah, So we say, I there, but we actually say it only because the mind is doing those things. Is there an I that is separate from the mind that is doing those things? And if the mind is the person, then... You know, we don't need to say, my mind is thinking. We say, I'm thinking. yeah. And then if the mind is the person, and the person is also walking, then we can say, my mind is walking. So where does that get us? Yeah? Do we really have any understanding of who we are? You begin to have some feeling that, oh, yeah, the self is just made up by mind. It's just made up. Then our mind says, no, it can't be totally made up by mind fabricated by mind. That's impossible. Yeah, there's something there that's really the mind, and there's something there that's really me. I don't know exactly how they fit together, but it's definitely not made up by mind. Well, then find some other way that it exists. If it's not made up, it's not fabricated by mind. How does it exist? Okay. So, this is very good for pointing us towards emptiness. And it's very good for getting us to think about, when we say mindstream, our continuity of mind, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah. Especially when you, we use the word stream, mind stream, yeah? There it is, a stream going from yesterday to today, yeah? Is our mind like that? Some kind of stream you can see? Okay, so someone wrote a bunch of questions about the mind stream. So this person is saying, uh, when it comes to the mind stream, I think of it more literally like a stream. And all the individual streams of all the individual people eventually enter a river or the ocean. So my question is, does the mind stream stay separate forever? And if so, when a mind becomes fully fully awakened like a Buddha with no obscuration, what keeps it separate from other awakened minds? And now you can get a sense of the New Age newspaper that says that we are all fragments of one cosmic mind and we will all merge back into being that one cosmic mind. Yeah, this is where it comes from. Okay, so each mind stream is individual, and when someone's born, it's not that you get part of. It's not like two streams. The physical analogy has limits, so it's not like a little bit comes off of this stream and a little bit comes off of this stream, and you know, and then it forms a, a new stream. Actually, I found out when I was in Israel that the the uh, Kabbalah idea of, they have an idea of rebirth, and it's that you get portions of other uh, mind streams, kind of like a reconfigured, reconfigured mind stream. Yeah. Well, why do we go? Ooh, but you know, who knows what we're getting from our previous life? Is it any better? Yeah? So the mind streams are separate. Then they say when you become awakened, yeah, in one way, all the mind streams are like an ocean in that they are all water. Okay? But each drop of water doesn't lose its own identity. Okay? So you have all these mind streams, mental continuities, that go from polluted to to pure. Yeah? And because all of the Buddhas have pure minds, and they perceive the same things, it looks like a bunch, like they all became the same. Yeah? But, each drop of water is different. It doesn't, you know, lose its its identity in that way. So all the Buddhas perceive the same thing. And they all get along terribly well, you know. Tara's not going, She, Manjushri, you're such a beautiful gold color. I wish I were like that. And Manjushri doesn't say, Oh, but Tara, you know, You know, I have to sit with my legs in the vajra position and you get to relax a bit. I'm jealous. Um, You know, they don't have this kind of thing going on. So they perceive the same things. They're all omniscient. But, you know, they're the continuity of different transmigrators, of different sentient beings. Okay? And also at the state of enlightenment, you can have many Taras, many Yamandakas, many Vajrapanis, many, you know, Manjushris. So it isn't like one person becomes Manjushri and then nobody else can be Manjushri. Yeah. Somebody else, some other Sindhya being, whose meditational deity is Manjushri, practices that. And then appears in that form. Okay, and all these Buddhas don't have their whole notion of I is not like our notion of I. So it's not like although they're the, these individual drops of water, each one saying, "I'm here, move out of the way, I'm here," <laughs> you know, recognize me, I'm different than everybody else. Yeah. So the the Buddha's whole notion—they use the word "I," but the way their whole notion of what that word refers to is completely different than our notion. They don't perceive it as some individual, personal identity that is special and distinct and from everybody else. That's got to, you know prove itself in some way. Okay? So because there are so many sentient beings, does this mean there are countless eternal individual mind streams? Yes. Okay? So, I know the mind stream is fluid and highly influenced by many factors, but what keeps it separate from merging into a bigger stream? Okay, so here's, you can see the problem of an analogy that refers to physical things, because an analogy is not exactly the, at the same as the thing it exemplifies in all aspects. If it were, then it wouldn't be an example or an analogy, yeah? So when we're making a physical analogy to something that is not physical, yeah, don't imbue the, uh, you know, the mind with physical qualities. Uh, Because it's not gonna... uh, You're not gonna get a a little bit, you know, break off from this mind and from that mind. Flow into the other mind into a bigger mind and then break off from that like a stream coming up, you know, coming out of a lake or something like that. Not like that. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's nothing that keeps it from merging into a bigger stream because they're not physical to start with. Yeah. Okay or maybe I can look at it, from the angle of the the stream stays separate, but all the streams are made of water, which is the true nature of mind, Buddha nature. So, yeah, all the streams have Buddha nature, okay? But one person's Buddha nature is not the same as the other person's Buddha nature, Okay. (laughs) They're different, aren't they? Like one person's body is, everybody has a body, but not every body. My body isn't your body, and your body isn't my body. Okay? Now, part of Buddha nature is the empty nature of the mind. So you couldn't say, well, but that's the same, you know. To a mind that is directly perceiving emptiness... The emptiness of one mind and the emptiness of the other mind do not appear distinct. They just appear to be emptiness. But when we're talking on the conventional level and we have to use words and concepts, yeah, then we say one person's, you know, the emptiness of one person's mind is not the same as the emptiness of the other person's mind. Because they're... Perceived, uh, you know, different people realize their own Buddha nature. Okay, does that help? Okay. Now, so we're on 175. Halfway down the page, where it says the Buddha responds to questions about rebirth. Okay, so the sutra responding to a query about what happens after death, in that sutra, the Buddha responds to questions that his father, King Sud- Sudodana, poses about death, dying, and rebirth. And the following is a summary of their exchange. So this sutra was actually translated by Geshe Dadul Namgyal, and then I uh, abbreviated it so that we could have it here, because it's it's uh, very interesting. Okay, so the king... seems like kings are, are asking monks a lot of questions. Yeah? So... Uh, the king asks after death do we cease to exist like a fire that is burned out okay now many people feel that way yeah and I know for myself there was a portion of my life where I felt like you die and that's it you know the candle went out nothing continues and that's it okay and a lot of people um think that way and if you have the idea that the mind is a, an emergent property of the brain, then that's the logical conclusion from that belief, too, because the brain ceases and doesn't function, so the mind must also cease. Okay, so then the Buddha responds, no, okay, we don't cease like a fire that's burned out after death. One life follows the next just as the sun rises again after it is set, and new plants grow in an area after a natural disaster. If there were no rebirth, all living beings would have been completely extinguished by now. One day, yeah? So many beings die, then finish, 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 nothing. Okay, so the sun sets, and then it rises again, okay? because the causes are there for that to happen. Now, is the sun that sets the same as the sun that rises? Is it? You're sure? So that means there's many suns? There's one sun that sets and another that rises? So you have two suns? and then every day you have two sons? So then you have a lot of sons. Are you sure they aren't the same? Mm -hmm. Then how do you explain why there aren't two sons? Are, Are the two sons... Exactly. If there aren't two suns, then are the, the sun that sets and the sun that rises, are they exactly the same? No. And there's two of them. Isn't there? Why not? Why
1: isn't there two? There's a new sun every moment. What? There's a new sun every moment as it's changing moment by moment.
0: Yes. So it's, it's a new sun, so you have two suns. One that's set, one that arises. Actually you have more. One that's set, one in the middle of the night, and one that rises. Well yes,
1: you have a new you have many suns every every second. Yes, you have
0: many, many suns. Yeah. Yeah. So when they say that they're studying the sun, which sun are they studying? There's many of them. What does that mean? There is no inherent sun in it. Not even one, but I see one. Yeah, I see a sun. The sun's there. You're telling me the sun's not there? You're not telling me that. So the sun's there. Which sun is there? No, the sun's not there. Oh. So, if there's no sun, then what, what set in, at nighttime and what rose the next morning? Yeah, well, that's great, but the table's are dependent arising. So, the table set at night and rose in the morning? <laughs> okay, think about it. How are you going to explain this? Are you sure? <laughs> no, of course not. But, <laughs> 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 but it's a very good microbiome. i But the sun looks the same. Yes, yes. Yeah, so what do you mean it changes? Well, it looks exactly the same. I didn't say the sun changed. I
1: said the basis of designation of the sun changes, woman.
0: Okay. So that means that the basis of designation of the sun changes, but the sun is permanent? Yeah. A label sets at night and rises in the morning? <laughs> I think there's some confusion in this room. Okay? So think about it. Yeah, We'll continue, but put it in your notes and try and figure out what's going on here. Okay? Then the the king asked, will sentient beings be born in similar forms in their future lives, or can they be born in other forms that are different from their present ones? Okay? So... Are we all going to be humans in our next life? Are the kitties all going to be kitties? You know, will we look, will our next life look like we look this life? Yeah. You're not going to look the same. What, you're going to have three heads in your next life? <laughs> 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 oh. What? So perhaps the way things are So, yeah. So, you know, we have, this is the 14th Dalai Lama, yeah? So there were 13 before him. Are they the same person? They're different people. So then the 14th, the... Dalai Lama is not in the continuity of the 13th Dalai Lama because they're different people. Hmm? So <laughs> Why not? Huh? <laughs> <Why not? laughs> well? Yeah, Yes, the fourteenth Dalai Lama, the same person as the thirteenth. No. Yeah. The person imputed independence
1: upon the five aggregates, and if the aggregates have changed between life, between one ceasing and then the next life taking, then they're not the same person because the aggregates are different.
0: So they're two different people. Yeah. So then there's no continuity of the person from one life to the next. So what carries the karma? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no mere I that continues from one life to the next. Lamet <laughs> says there's
1: there's the general I, mm-hmm. which uh, covers all the
2: lifetimes of the individual mm-hmm. mind stream, and then in each lifetime there are, I don't know the term, individual
0: yeah. I or person. Yeah, specific eyes. Yeah. So they're like particularities of the general one. Yeah. Uh, but but when but when the Dharma mm-hmm. students Meet the child who's said to be the incarnation of their teacher, they all look at that child and said, This is my teacher. So their idea is very much that the incarnation is the same person. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. Then they say, did he recognize you? Yeah, did he recognize you? Think about that. Sentient beings, here's the answer from uh, the Buddha. Sentient beings are born according to the force of their virtuous and non-virtuous actions. Depending on which karmic seeds ripen at the time of death, their next rebirth may be in any realm human beings whose virtuous karma ripens may be born as devas while those whose non-virtuous karma ripens at the time of death may be born as animals so then if uh, if upeka was a human being in his previous life is he the same person now <laughs> Because cats are, you know, all living beings are considered persons, even grasshoppers. Yeah? So is he the same person? (laughs) Yeah, his specific eye, yeah, is one instance of the general eye. Yeah, but that's the specific eye that is Upeka went out of existence when Opeka, well, he hasn't, when his previous life died, that person went out of existence. And then the the new specific I that is designated on different aggregates, that one, you know, was born. So then it's really rather silly how we think that the, the incarnation of our teacher is the same person, isn't it? So, why do people run around looking for incarnations of their teachers? And a maze going. <laughs> yeah. Don't think about it. In the future, do sentient beings have the same family members as in this life? <laughs> 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 no, Venerable Senke? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to have the same everything and have it done all over again and try and make it better? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not like, didn't they have some movie where somebody, oh, yeah. yeah, was, I never saw the movie, but I heard about that. Okay. But, you know, people have such tight grasping for their family, you know? So much attachment to their family. So much of uh, personal identity is involved with who, what family you are a part of, you know? And, uh, you know, what clan or family or ethnic group, or racial group, or whatever it is. So much of our identity. So, you know, well, we just have the same people again. Yeah. Yeah, you don't look too happy about that either. (laughs) Yeah. I had one friend when I was in Israel... And um, uh, you know, very into the Dharma and doing lots of uh going go retreats. And uh then I met him a few years later and he had fallen in love with a woman for from Korea. And he said, um, you know, we are real soulmates. It's like I you know, we know each other from before, you know, and with the yeah, we're soulmates. We're the same people, just continuing. And I looked at him and I said, "Are you a Buddhist or not?" <laughs> yeah. To feel that you know you're you're just soulmates, picking up from where you, you know, lived before. Now it's true that at the time of the Buddha, some uh, there was a couple who told the Buddha that, you know, they got along so well, they had such a good relationship, how could they be born uh, in their next life so that they could be husband and wife again in the next life? So the Buddha talked to them about creating virtue and all. But, uh, you know? Yeah, like what happens, you know? If you were Liz Taylor, who had eight husbands, but some of them she married twice, So did she have eight husbands or did she have six husbands? (laughs) Yeah. Then, if in your next life you have the same one as you had this life, which one are you going to have? Okay, so the Buddha said, No, we consider ourselves relatives and recognize each other based on our present bodies. That's the whole thing, this whole feeling of I belong to this family, I am this person. It's all dependent on the body and the whole idea of blood relationship, that somehow having the same genes makes you closer than to anybody else. But that's presupposing that we are our bodies. Yeah. We aren't our bodies. So, why do we feel closer to some beings than others? What what makes that happen? Familiarity and, and attachment, yeah, and sort of, that's what it boils down to. Yeah. We make up some something, yeah, so we know the person very well, we're quite attached to them, we, you know, create this feeling of, you know, we are solidly, you know, hooked together, you know, unable to be separated. But, you know, if we look at the Buddha's teachings, he talks about this, you know, you're, you're a relative in one life and your next life you're born in totally different realms, totally different universes. You may not see each other for eons. And when you do see each other, you don't recognize each other. Yeah. Because we were all each other's parents and everybody else, you know. Did you recognize anybody when you came here? I remember, you know, on the planet, oogoo, <laughs> You know, fifteen eons ago, you were my first grade teacher, you know? We don't remember any of that. Or, you know, we we were we were um bees, no, wasps born in the same hive. Yeah. Or ants coming from the same queen. No, we don't recognize each other. But it's interesting, isn't it? How much of our identity is linked because of familiarity and attachment, and our our mind exaggerating something? How much of our identity and is linked to the family, and how much we can be confined by that that feeling? You know. I was born in this family, and this and such was expected of me. You know, and all my ancestors did this, and so I need to continue the the line. she you meet a lot of people who feel so much pressure from the family to do the same kind of work that their parents did. Yeah, or live the same kind of life that their parents lived. Yeah. And we think it's completely natural and reasonable. But that's made up by mind, too, isn't it? Yeah, totally made up by mind. when we pass okay so we know we consider ourselves relatives and rec- recognize each other based on our present bodies in this life when we pass away we relinquish these bodies and take new ones we will be unable to recognize each other and have no basis on which to consider ourselves relatives then yeah Okay, then the next question, are people born in the same economic class with the same wealth or lack thereof as in this life? Okay. A what? A kingly question. Right, yeah, the king, like, next life am I going to have all this money? And that's why, you know, in some countries they burn paper money. Yeah. Because your real money stayed here, and your relatives fight about it, so your relatives then buy the paper money, which is uh, worth less. You know, they don't give you the same value as they took from your inheritance, from their inheritance. They buy you money from the Bank of Hell. You know, they don't m- buy you money from the Bank of Brahma. You know, thinking that you'll be born in, in the Brahma realm. They buy you money from the bank of hell and then burn it. And you get all this pollution. Yeah? You can see, you know, where these customs come from, how how the mind you know, makes up these things, and like the the um, the mummies in Egypt, how they put all these things that you might need in your next life in the sar- sarcophagus, sarcophagi, sarcophaguses. <laughs> yeah, you put them in there. And, but if they really went to the next life with the Pharaoh, why are they still there? When, when they're dug up, a, a couple of millennia later, right. even within this one life, we see affluent people become poor, and the poor become wealthy. Our socioeconomic status is temporary and impermanent. Ah. ah. But I have a position in the government now with lots of power, and you're telling me in my next rebirth I could be born as one of those migrants at the southern border that they won't let into this country. But I'm an American, and they should let me into this country in my next life if by some mix-up I get born, you know, not...
1: Somebody else's fault,
0: Yeah, it's somebody else's fault, right? (laughs) It's Obama's fault. You know, we know everything's Obama's fault, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, think about it. If we really thought, you know, the people that we want to exclude, what would happen if we were born in that group? Huh? And so so you think, you know, of the Nazis and the Jews, and then the Jews and the Palestinians. Yeah. And the uh, what are the the two tribes in in Africa, Tutsi and and Kutu, yeah. So yeah, what happens if you're born in the other one in your next life? <sighs> And what would happen if you knew this life, that you would be born there in your next life? Wouldn't that change your whole attitude towards that group? If you were a Ku Klux Klan member and you knew you were going to be born black in your next life, you know, you could say that guy would freak out and commit suicide. But if he does, that's just making him, you know, be born quicker. Okay, so our socioeconomic status is temporary and impermanent. Generosity is the cause of wealth, whereas miserliness and theft are the cause of poverty. Some people, both the rich and the poor, practice generosity continuously. Those whose financial status vacillates considerably may practice generosity sporadically, or may regret their previous acts of giving. That's not so good. Persistent miserliness, he's going through here different categories of people according to how they give. Persistent miserliness and stealing, including embezzling money, cheating others in business deals, and so forth, can result in poverty over many lifetimes. However, if someone regrets and purifies these actions, the results will not be experienced. Yeah, And people think, oh, but I lied on my income tax. Or I borrowed money from somebody and I never returned it. Uh, are all the different ways that uh, that we justify and rationalize our stinginess. It's scary. You know, has said generosity is cause of wealth. But we usually think stinginess is the cause of wealth. Because if I give it away, I won't have it. And then I'll be poor. If I hang on to it, then I'll have it and I'll be rich. Yeah. Our way of thinking is completely the opposite. Mm. Oh, here's a good one. Sometimes people dream—this is the king's question— sometimes people dream about their deceased relatives and friends. Are their relatives and uh, actually appearing and communicating with them in these dreams? I would get asked this question a lot when I lived in Singapore, okay? So the Buddha said, when we dream of deceased loved ones, it is just a case of past latencies being activated. The person we dream about is not present. He or she is not having the same dream. Yeah? So you dream of having this conversation with somebody? It's not like the other person is there in your dream, that they're having the same dream as you are and you're conversing in your dreams. Okay, so he or she is not having the same dream, and even when alive, we don't experience each other's dreams. If someone dreams about us, we are not in his dream doing what he dreams we are doing. Yeah, so if somebody, you know, says, I dreamt about you last night, you were beating it so and so up, then you get worried, oh no. You know, no, if that was the other person's dream. You weren't in their dream beating somebody up. Uh-huh. The dream is due to the ripening of latencies on his mind's dream. Yeah? Uh-huh. So the dream is always ripenings of latencies. Suppose someone lives in a very luxurious house and later moves to another place. Her previous house is torn down to build another building. She may have a very clear dream of the house, so clear that she feels that she is actually in it. Yeah. Yet this is just her dream. It is not, it is a practice. It is a product of activated latencies. Because the house you're dreaming you're in and that you feel you're in, isn't there anymore. Yeah. Dreaming of the deceased is similar. That dear one no longer has his previous body. He has already taken rebirth in accordance with his karma. Our dream of him is simply the maturation of latencies on our mind. Yeah. So that that's good to understand. Otherwise we could get quite superstitious about different dreams, you know? So, you know, we may dream of different things, and those are due to latencies on our mind, so they may have something to do with with what we've been thinking about, you know? And we may be able to learn something about what we've been thinking about unconsciously that hasn't come to the conscious front, but all of that is our dream, our projection, what's made up in in our mind. It's not the other people. They are in the dreams. Wait, what about when see, not during
2: their sleep, but they see walking
0: around the house? Oh, when they see people walking around yeah, the house? Yeah. Well... In waking state. You know, well, according to the Tibetans, some people have that karma to be able to see beings from other realms. So some people may see that. But it could also be a uh, uh, latencies, you know, a projection of latencies. Yeah? In the same way, like, um, you know, you can have two people in one situation, and one person is totally paranoid about what's going on, and the other person is completely fine. And, you know, both of their experiences, you know, have to do with their karma and the ripening of latencies. Yeah. But there are some people who can see these kinds of things because because of previous life karma or because of powers uh, due to samadhi.
2: So, reminds me also once you said that um, Buddhism is not very, or somebody said Buddhism in regard to dying is not very... Um,
0: comforting.
2: Comforting. Yeah. Um, um, my sister had, uh, in the moment when my mother died, that was the only night when she wasn't in the hospice, but um, she was at the phone and falling asleep having this appearance of mother rising as uh, you know rising up mm-hmm. the sky and that moment when she raised up the sky smiling and very good appearance of uh, angel flings, and yeah. and then <laughs> um, the phone rang and then the sister said she died right this moment so when I would say the answer like it's just an entity in your mind for my mm-hmm. sister that wouldn't have worked oh. <laughs> because yeah. it was very pleasing to her to know, okay, she died right. in a very good sense. And yes. um, Yeah,
0: yeah. I think, I, I once asked one Lama about that, when people ask me about their dreams and they want to know, is it true, is it real? And his answer was, help them interpret it in a way that will aid their Dharma practice. Yeah? So for your sister, thinking like that is very, very healing. And it would not be beneficial for her to say, "Oh, that's just a latency on your mind stream." It's better that she has that dream and she and she has that sense of, of being of closure and healing because of it. You know, if she had the dream of her mo- her mother rising up and then saying, "You didn't wash the dishes." <laughs> scolding her, then you could interpret the dream in a different way, you know, to help her. Yeah. Okay. Um, Next question. Sometimes people offer and dedicate... Oh, let me go back to that first question. When I lived uh, on Butterfly Avenue at the center there in Singapore, then the neighbor uh the next house over somebody in the neighbor's house passed away and uh you know they always have a wake in the house and the you know everything so the the body was there and it was the day or the next day you know the person had died and then i wound up talking to one of the family members to one of the the young women um I don't know, niece or something of the person who died. And I said, you know, how are you? And then she told me the story. She said that she was with all the relatives and then uh, she went out to uh, get something, you know, for them to eat or, you know, she went out for some reason. And when she was walking out through the house, through the kitchen, she tripped uh over a bucket, knocked a bucket over. So there was the sound of the bucket knocking over. Then she got what she had needed and came back in the room. And the relatives were all going, you know, whoever it was who died, she's there. We heard her. She was in the kitchen. Yeah? She was mixing something and doing something with the bucket. And the relatives were all sure That the person who had died was in the kitchen. And the woman who tripped, she told me, You know, I just tripped and I tried to tell them no, I was me tripping over a bucket. And she said they wouldn't believe it. (laughs) They were insisting it was the deceased relative who had come back to them. Okay. Next uh, question. Sometimes people offer and dedicate food and drink to their dead relatives, so they will have these to consume for a long time. Does this help the deceased relatives? Okay. When the first day, when I, you know, I I was told to go to Singapore. I got you know a message, and it was like, go to Singapore. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Get on the next plane. So I arrive in Singapore, and I'm taken to this temple, and I arrive in the seventh month, okay? this um, The seventh month is the month where they have the Hungry Ghost Festival, yeah? And again, it's this idea that all your relatives were reborn as hungry ghosts, and they do all, you know, different things. But uh, anyway, I so I walk into this Buddhist temple yeah and in I go to prostrate to the Buddha, and in the the main room, there's row upon row upon row of human effigies sitting at tables with dishes of splendid food in front of them. And I'm going, you didn't see that when you lived in Singapore. <gasps> Oh, it was the first thing I saw when I when I went there, you know, in the seventh month. And I'm going, what in the world? And then somebody explains to me, you know, this is the month where, you know, everybody thinks that their dead relatives come back and you want to feed your dead relatives and you want them to be happy. So they all bring food. And, you know, they have these effigies that are just as big as human beings, all lined up, you know, kind of like, you know, a big long table after table after table and with all this food in front of them. And, you know, it was coming from a good place in people's heart. They wanted, you know, their relatives to be nourished and be happy. And they want, it was done as a way of respecting their relatives. Yeah. So the, the thought. Was one of kindness and benefit, <clears throat> but the food never got gets to the relatives, and actually the family takes it afterwards and eats it. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, so it, it's interesting, you know. This is uh, you can see how the human mind works. You know, when somebody is alive. We criticize them, we blame them, we trash them. As When they die, we feel guilty about everything unkind that we've done to them, and then we want to honor and respect them. So in Asia, you give all these food offerings and so on. In America, what you do to make up for how mean you were is you have a really expensive coffin, and a really expensive funeral. And that shows how much you love somebody. Yeah, Quite interesting, you know, how the human mind works, how we create things that will help us heal inside, even though what we're doing isn't actually getting to the other person and helping them. But it helps us, you know. So, um, yeah. But of course, you know, when I got there, then the young people are asking me, you know, is this Buddhism? And I was asking the same question because this was in the main meditation hall, you know, main hall, Buddha hall. And, you know, and they were saying, do you burn all this money? Because they burn, I mean, they would have like the big barrels that we have out here, you know, full of paper money, paper Rolls Royces, paper computers, paper mansions, you know, all, and all this stuff being burned. And the thought was good, but it doesn't really benefit the relatives at all. So there is some Buddhist sutra in the Chinese canon, uh, where I think it's Shariputra and Mogliana are talking about how actually to benefit your relatives and that it's better to make offerings to the Sangha and then, and then dedicate the merit for the well-being of your relatives in their future lives, you know, rather than burning all these things. Cause that's folk custom. Yeah, that's not Buddhism. But when I first went to Singapore in 1987, many people, they did not know the difference between folk custom and Singapore, and, um, and Buddhism. It's much, much, you know, it's changed a lot now. But when I first went, yeah. Okay, so the answer. <laughs> it is not possible for the deceased to consume these things gradually over time for centuries and eons, since there is no cause that can make these things last that long. We may put food out in our homes for people in distant lands who are hungry, but they do not receive it. It is even less likely for someone who is separated from their previous body to partake of the food and drink their living relatives dedicate to them. Yeah, many people would be very upset to hear that because this is their way of making peace with however they treated the person when the person was alive. Yeah. It's filial piety too. Like it's very oh, yeah. real for my aunt who is oh, the eldest. Yeah. Like the whole family has to buy the right kind of offerings on the, like day you go to pay respect to the ancestors, mm-hmm. and you go to the market and get chicken freshly killed. I think. So you know, it's tremendous negativity. Yeah.
1: Hmm. In, in Tibetan Buddhism, isn't there the practice that when um, someone dies, that you burn the sampa? for the hungry ghosts, for if, or for the bado being? That might be the continuity, for like the 49 days you burn the um, sampa so they can get the smell of it or something? Uh,
0: there may be something like that. I am not an expert in that. I, my teachers never taught, taught that. I think that, uh, you know, have, did you ever learn anything about that? Yeah, well, the, the the sur is making offerings to the gods and the devas and the lords of the place.
1: Huh? No, oh, the, Smell eaters. I, I know that.
0: Oh, okay. Sur. Oh, sur, yeah, that's to, to, um, yeah. Smell yeah, smell eaters, okay. <laughs> so there, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was thinking of the one where you go up in the mountain and you throw the sampa. Yeah, that one's offerings for the devas and things. But the sur is offerings to, yeah, to smell-eaters.
1: When when one of my friend's grandfather died, uh, for the forty-nine days she was offering um, this burnt sampa for the smell, I think for the bado beans. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I don't know how all of that works, you know. I mean, there's beings born in the bardo, for sure, and there's beings, you know, who who could be smell eaters, yeah? But does that mean that our dead relative is the bardo being who's picking up those things, okay? Because Tibetan Buddhism, you know, the Bon tradition was very strong, and uh, when Buddhism came in, they... Took many of the bone thoughts and rituals and gave them a Buddhist twist. Yeah. So, and I know that there's, uh, you know, different lamas. I don't know. Sometimes some Nyingma lamas may do these rituals or bone lamas. Yeah, Nyingma. Yeah. And that makes sense because that was the first, that, was evolved from the first people who came, the first Buddhists who came in, in, you know, brought Buddhism to Tibet. Yeah, I saw one movie they created, they made about, I forget what it was called, but, you know, it was about Tibetan Buddhism and people dying and all the rituals for the dead and making offerings to the dead and things like that. But whether that's to be taken literally or whether it is, you know, we have this from a Buddhist sutra. Yeah, that's for individuals to decide what they believe, I guess.
2: When we do the Sura practice here, Mm -hmm. um, then we offer the incense and the um, Sampa and such and Mm -hmm. precious pearl. And so then you um, develop compassion and you offer these and think of them that they may receive it and so you draw Mm -hmm. them to your mind and then you have the opportunity to give them some dharma as -hmm. well so most of it happens in your mind right so Mm -hmm. you change your relationship to um, those beings Mm -hmm. and I think that's the transformative
0: yes yeah I think a lot of these things where you're offering outside is actually a method for us to create merit. Yeah. Just to have the idea of, or the thought of generosity, or whatever. Yeah. Yes, all the Singaporeans are listening. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, one is from Jolene. Okay.
1: She says, at the point of death, if we aspire to be born where we can continue to study Buddhism and to meet our great teachers, will it work?
0: If you have created a lot of merit and you make very strong prayers, not just at the time of death, but during your life and then at the time of death, yes, definitely that can make the good karma that you've created in your life ripen in that way. And we should actually pray for that to be born with, com- you know, completely qualified Mahayana and Vajrayana teachers important to direct our merit in that way. Then someone asks, is it important to practice in our dreams to prepare for the bardo? If you can practice your, in your dreams, yes. Yeah. I mean, we should practice virtue all the time. So in your dream, if you can dream of being generous and dream of, you know, keeping ethical conduct, that's wonderful. And and then Tanner, he says, Do you have nightmares and or bad dreams? Venerable? <laughs> me? Uh, no. You know? Maybe once every ten years or something, but no. Uh-uh. I have strange dreams, you know, weird things happen, it's like in all dreams, but no. Nobody's chasing me. <laughs> yeah. And there's one more oh, sorry, okay. from Ken Ryu.
1: He says Ken, Ken Ru. Um something about how can we change the mindset to employ monks of employing
0: monks at a
1: funeral service?
0: Ah, yes. Yeah, that's what is often happening, you know? Somebody dies, and then there are certain uh this is in the Chinese community and the Tibetan community. And there are certain monastics that you ask to come and do a puja, uh, or do some chanting, and then you make an offering to them. Uh, I remember so clearly when at my ordination in Taiwan that the, uh, the people ordaining us, they spoke very strongly against that, you know, that you should not be one of those people who, who just goes around from one funeral to the next, chanting and then collecting large sums of money. Yeah. So um, how to change that uh, for yourself? You know, you don't want to invite those people. But there is, you know, benefit in asking the Sangha to pray for a dead relative. So you could go to a monastery, make an offering, ask them to dedicate for a relative, you know, during the time when they do puja, or even they don't make puja. You know, they don't have to do that, that you make a, uh, create merit by giving an offering and then you dedicate for that, for the relative. Okay. And then, um, I think it's very important that our friends and relatives were the people who have the strongest karmic connection with them. So it's important that we do the prayers, yeah? And that we do the practices and dedicate the merit for them. I remember one time when I was living in India, my grandmother died, and I went up to see Gimlam Rimpa and I, uh, you know, asked him if he would do prayers for my grandma. And he, his reply was, you're the one with the very strong karmic connection to her. You should, you know, do the practices, make the offerings, and dedicate for her. Huh? And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But it is good to make offerings to the sangha and then dedicate the merit from the generosity, Yeah, because you're helping people to practice the dharma and create virtue when you support the sangha.
3: Uh, my my question actually goes back to the introductory reflections on the mind stream. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry if maybe you addressed this in the previous week when I wasn't here, but I was wondering about, you know, the sort of a backlash against or, you know, dislike of uh, the idea of mind-body-substance dualism because, mm-hmm. you know, going back like historically to... Descartes' presentation and the argument against it and his inability to really find or cl- clearly describe a sort of mechanism of interaction between mind and body. Mm-hmm. So from the, our, from the Buddhist perspective and the sutras and in general philosophy, uh, what's what's what are we able to say in that regard? And mm. do we just leave the question kind of?
0: Yeah, alone? I think there we have to uh, look at, look to tantra. You know, because tantra is where they talk about the interaction between the different levels of body and the different levels of consciousness.
3: So then there, when we have the extremely subtle mind and wind being of one nature, Yeah. so then how is that not contradictory to the idea of um, mind-body but, being distinct?
0: Okay, because usually when we think of the body, it depends how you define body, If you think of body as something that is material, yeah, the extremely subtle wind is not material. Yeah. You can't see the extremely subtle wind buzzing around. It's not made of atoms and molecules. It's something way, way subtle. Yeah. So it's it's kind of when you talk about the subtlest body, you know, because that's the one that manifests as as the the uh, the Buddhist Sambokakaya, yeah, the resource body. But uh, you know, it is a Buddhist Sambokakaya in the pure land. Is that made of atoms and molecules? Yeah. Okay. But so I think, my theory is that somehow, I mean the winds are what uh, Create a link between the consciousness and the gross nervous system. That's my theory.
2: Yeah. Isn't the very subtle wind categorized as form of the different kinds of phenomena? It is form. It's a subtle kind of form, but it still is
0: form. Yeah, but the def- but that's why I said if you consider it matter, not it's matter. It's no. not matter. It's not material. Yeah, but it would be considered form. But it's You know, that extremely subtle kind of of form is not material. I mean, it's one nature with the mind. You can't separate the two of them. Yeah. You can't say, oh, there's mind here, and then we glue something material onto the mind.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and one of my teachers was saying, strictly speaking, then, the formless realm isn't really formless.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because there is that, there's always that very that subtle subtle form. mind. Yeah, yeah. I've my teachers have said that too, but there's a lot to think about here, huh? Um, I have. A, well, it must be Mahayana. I mean, it must be in the Tibetan canon. That doesn't mean that that it's a Mahayana sutra, but yeah, it's from the Sanskrit tradition because geshe translated it. From Tibetan, yeah, so it's in the 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 um yeah, it's in the Sanskrit tradition, but there are you know sutras that have more of a fundamental vehicle uh feeling, you know the, yeah that are descendant from the eighteen fundamental vehicle schools there are those sutras and passages from them in the Tibetan canon. So this may be something along that line. But I don't think uh, it would contradicts anything that that we've learned at all.